So as we finish up this first chapter, we're going to focus in on verses 21 through 23 this morning. Paul, having prayed that his readers would know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward those who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Having prayed these things, Paul goes on to describe uh, the exalted position God has given to his son. And there are several places in the New Testament where we have these, these beautiful descriptions of Christ and his exaltation. And the verses that we read here, they remind me somewhat of the verses in the second chapter of Philippians. And maybe you remember those verses there where Paul is talking about how God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here in Ephesians 1, there in Philippians 2, over in Colossians 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, we have these, these just uh, what, what they would call these strong uh, Christological passages where there's just this, this magnifying uh, of the, the glorified Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, you know, he's praying for us, but it's almost like at the end of, of the prayer, although I think we'll see that what he says is still connected to the prayer, it's almost like he just sort of uh, goes on a bit of a diversion and he just gets caught up in the glory of Christ. He's talking about uh, the, the great Power that raised Christ from the dead. He's praying that we would know that power that's at work in us, that power that raised Christ from the dead. But then when he gets to, you know, Christ having been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father, he just goes on then to, you know, he's been placed over all the principalities, powers, mights, dominions, every name that is named, everything's been put under his feet. And it's like he just, you know, burst forth in this praise for the exalted Christ. So in verses 21 through 23 that I said we're going to focus on, there are four things that I want to draw to your attention. Number one, Christ is presently seated far above all other powers. Secondly, God has put all things under his feet. Thirdly, he is the head of the church And then fourthly, he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. So looking at the first point, Christ is presently seated far above all other powers. Far above all other powers. And so Paul lists principalities, powers, mights, dominions. What is he referring to. He's referring to the powers that have existed, the powers that existed at the present time, the powers that would go into the future, the great empires that have ruled over the nations, the great rulers that have come and gone throughout history. 
He says Christ is over all of them. He's above all of them. Today, we uh, have nations that rule over other nations. We have men who head up governments that um, have dominion over multitudes of people. Sometimes we hear it said that uh, the president of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. The powers that we're referring to when we talk like that are the powers that Paul says are all subjected to Christ. They're under him. He has been exalted far above all of these principalities, powers in this age and in the age to come. The the powers in the material universe, the powers in the spiritual universe, He's not just talking about the human rulers, but he's also talking about his dominion over those spiritual forces that that control what's happening on the human and material level. In two different places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we get insight into the fact that, that there are spiritual powers that are controlling the world, that are governing the world, that are actually influencing world leaders. In Isaiah, the 14th chapter, the prophet is speaking of the king of Babylon. And at a certain point, it's very obvious that he's speaking about the the human ruler of the kingdom, probably Nebuchadnezzar. But then he suddenly transitions from talking about the human ruler to speaking of the spiritual power behind him. And he moves from speaking of the, uh, of the king of Babylon to O Lucifer, who has fallen from heaven. And then he goes on to describe what happened uh, in the fall of Lucifer from heaven and predicts a, a future judgment upon him. And we have a similar kind of a thing in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. And there in Ezekiel, it's not the king of Babylon that's being addressed, but it's the king of Tyre. And again, it's obvious at a certain point that he's speaking to the the human ruler of the kingdom of Tyre. But then suddenly he begins to speak of him as one who was in the garden of God, who was uh, covered by every precious stone, who was the anointed cherub that covered And so again, it becomes clear that he's addressing these principalities and powers behind the scenes. So when Paul says that Jesus is exalted over all principality, power, might, and dominion, it's everything's included. The human rulers, those uh, empires that have, uh, you know, held uh, dominion over the nations and also the spiritual forces that have been behind them. Jesus uh, has been seated above all of them. Remember, Jesus himself said to his disciples as he was commissioning them to go out into the world with the gospel, he said, um, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So we go forth with the Uh, authority of Christ. How much authority does he have? He has all authority. 
He is sovereign over all principalities, powers, mights, dominions, every name that is named, both in the present age and in the age to come. And then Paul says that God has put all things under his feet. He's put all things under his feet. And this, of course, is a picture uh, of his dominion over all of these principalities and powers. They are, they are under his feet. They are under his heel, if you will. His foot is on the neck of his enemies. That's a picture that we see painted for us in the scripture. But notice what Paul says. God has put all things under Christ's feet. I want you to notice the present tense. In our desire to see the kingdom come in all its fullness, which of course is a good desire, uh, we sometimes fail though to realize that Christ is already on the throne and that all things have already been put under his feet. We can't forget that. We, we don't wanna forget that we are, uh, we're, we're battling from the vantage point of the captain of our salvation has already defeated his foes. It's already done. It's just a matter of time before this becomes visible. It's just a matter of time before it becomes manifested for all to see. But we who are trusting in Christ, we who are the servants of Christ, we need to remember that he's already got the victory. As he said, he already has all authority and all power. So when we go forth with the gospel, when we go forth with whatever endeavor it might be to see the work of God advanced, we need to remember that God has already put the enemies of Jesus under his feet. And it's only a matter of time before that is evident to all watching. It's only a matter of time. The battle is absolutely um, secure, or the victory is absolutely secure. He's won the victory, and it's just a matter of time before that becomes evident to all. So he's put all things under his feet, and then he says here that he has given him to be head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of the church. And he's the head in both the sense that he is the leader of the church. He is the head in the sense of being the source of the body's functionality. So Christ is the head of the church. We can never forget that. The moment we forget that, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. If we forget that and we start thinking that men are the head of the church, then trouble is not far down the road. You know, it was a sad day in the history of the church when people came up with the idea that we needed to have a head of the church on the earth. And we'll set up his throne in Rome because Rome was the great world power. And, and that's, that's the idea behind the papacy is that the Pope is the head of the church. Well, he's not, thank God. No man is the head of the church, thank God. Christ is the head of the church. He's the leader 
of the church. And may we never forget that. And especially those of us who are in Christian leadership, may we never forget who is the head, who's the leader. Our objective is not so much to lead the church. Our subjective is, or our objective is really to just come in line with what Christ has for the church. He's the head. So we defer to him. Lord, what is your vision? Lord, what is your will? Lord, what is your desire? What do you want to do? You know, oftentimes in churches today, uh, there's pressure on the leaders to come up with a plan. And, you know, sometimes it's modeled sort of after the business world. So, you know, you come up with a five-year plan. Well, I don't think it's bad to have some planning and to have some vision. We should have that. But at the end of the day, we want to defer back to the Lord. So, Lord, this is what we're thinking. This is the direction we're moving in. Uh, It seems like you're leading us here. But God, if we're off track in any way, if we're uh, being misguided in any way, Lord, please intervene and, you know, get us going in the right direction because you are the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church in the sense that he's the leader. He's the head of the church in the sense that he is the source of the body's functionality. So he's the head of the church in the sense that your head, my head, our brains are the source of our body's functionality. If your body is cut off from um, instruction from the brain, it's not going to work, right? That's what happens when uh, a stroke occurs or, you know, any kind of brain damage can potentially uh, affect the way the body functions because the, the functionality of the body goes back to the brain. From the brain through the central nervous system to all different parts of the body. You know, it's funny, though, we don't necessarily realize that a lot, do we? But there come those moments maybe in our lives or maybe in the life of somebody else where you suddenly see how real that is. But this is an analogy that is used over and over in the scripture. Christ is the head of the church in the sense that he is the, um, he's the source uh, of um, direction that is, is being given to the body. So again, as a body cannot function without the head, as the body cannot properly function unless it is uh, in tune with the, the, the system there in the brain. Neither can we properly function unless we stay vitally connected with Christ. And so Paul reminds us that he is the head of the body, the church. And then he refers to this idea of the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he is the head of the body of the church and he is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now this is where it gets a little bit complicated and Bible commentators are divided here as to what it means he is the fullness of him who fills all in all because apparently In the original language, it's difficult to get a a real um, absolute translation into English. Um, So there's been differences of opinions. And let me give you the two primary ones. Some believe 
that this verse is saying that the body, the church, is the fullness of Christ, the head. So in other words, what the idea would be is that apart from the church, Christ would be incomplete. Now, that immediately sounds not right. But if you think about it in the way that maybe Paul is intending that we think about it, it very well could be right. Now, it doesn't sound right to me if I think of it in terms of Christ's deity. Now, of course, Christ is God. And because he's God, he doesn't need anything to fill him, right? Anything to complete him. He is complete as God. But on the other hand, if we think of him in his humanity, you could argue the case that a head without a body is incomplete. Just like a bridegroom without a bride is incomplete. And these are the pictures that are given to us throughout the scripture. So it could be, as, as wild as it might sound, it could be indeed what's being said here is that we are the fullness or we bring completion to Christ. Now, it sounds crazy. It sounds wild. But think about this. God has linked himself so intimately with humanity There's something there with this link between God and man, like there is no link with any other creature. Of course, none of the uh, animals have that kind of a link with God. And apparently, not even the angels have that kind of link with God. There's some unique uh, connection between God and man. So if if you understand that, if you get a grip on that, and let me just remind you that the most unique connection is that God became a man. He didn't become an angel. He didn't become any other life form. He became a man. So if you think about it like that, then you could see how, yes, the, the church, the body, fills or brings completion to Christ who is the head. It's, it's pretty wild to think about it, but it could indeed be the case. The other possibility that's commonly put forth in juxtaposition to that one is that what is being said here is Christ is the fullness of God, which, uh, of course, um, we're told that in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we are told that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the divine nature in bodily form. So we can take it either way. It could be Uh, either one. The first one sounds wild, but it does seem possible. The second one is obviously true. So in a sense, they both could be the case. The fullness of him who fills all in all. But now here's the question. The question is, what what is the, the point that Paul is making here? Because remember, he's praying for us. He's praying for God's people. And he's praying that we would know these certain things, that we would know um, the, uh, the exceeding greatness of his power, that we would know uh, 
the glory of, of his inheritance uh, in the saints, that we would know what is the hope of our calling, that, that we would have uh, a spiritual enlightening and illumination from the spirit. These are the things that he's praying. Uh, but then he, like I said, he, he kind of goes off into this, this moment of praise and exaltation with Christ, but they're tied together. This is still, in a sense, part of the prayer. It's a bit of a diversion from it, as I said, but it's still, in a sense, a part of the prayer because what Paul is really wanting us to get and what he's wanting us to to lay hold of is that as it is with Christ, so it shall be with us. You see, he's, he's showing the link, going all the way back to the very beginning of the epistle, this whole idea of being in Christ Because we're in Christ, what's happened to Christ has happened to us positionally and will happen to us literally in time in the future. And I think that's what Paul is really wanting to drive home for us here. And so think about it. Christ, what is the context? Uh, God raised him up from the dead and seated him at his own right hand. So Christ... Our sins had slain him and death had engulfed him. As a man, just like all other men, sin had slain him. But in, in his particular case, it wasn't his own sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't commit any sin, but yet he's dead. But he's slain because of our sin. And so... Sin slew him, death engulfed him. His body was put in a grave like that of all other people. In his case, a great stone was rolled across the entrance of the tomb and all the power of the Roman Empire, the most brutal empire to ever rule the earth sealed the tomb so the body could not be tampered with. Paul's painting a picture for us here. God's mighty power raising Christ from the dead. You got to visualize in your mind all of the powers of darkness have seemingly sealed Christ in this tomb and he is to remain there permanently. It's just, you know, think of all, we mentioned it before, just all of the evil power throughout all of time, the evils that have oppressed people and, and imprisoned them and entombed them with, with no escape. This is the, the picture that's being painted by Paul of Jesus And then when it seems that uh, all is lost, uh, when it seems that all hope is gone, as those men said on the road to Emmaus after Jesus had died and they had been there as witnesses and they were walking along the road depressed and talking to one another and the risen Christ uh, comes alongside of them. They don't realize it's him. He says, what are you talking about as you walk along and you're so sad? They said, don't you know? Haven't you heard the things that have happened? 
Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And when we thought, past tense, we thought that he was the one to deliver Israel, but he was crucified and it's been three days. You see, that was the mentality that Christ was now sealed in a tomb to be there forever. But what happened? Well, Paul describes it here. Jesus burst forth from the grave. He burst forth from the grave. God's mighty power being demonstrated in him and raising Christ from the dead. He burst forth from the grave because as Peter said in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Remember what Paul is wanting to do here. He's wanting us to understand that as it is with Christ, so it shall be with us. Just like sin and death could not hold Christ, neither can sin and death hold us. The dominion that sin once had over us, Jesus broke that by rising from the dead. The dominion that death has over us, Jesus broke that by rising from the dead. And so as he was then exalted to the right hand of God, it shall also be the case with us who are his body. You see, that's where the connection comes back in, the body and the head. Everything that's happened to the head, as the head, he's the representative of the body. So everything that's happened to him will happen with us. And so here, in one sense, is the real point that Paul is making, the amazing point that he's reminding us of that we, we sort of know, but we don't often think enough about it. But what he's wanting to drive home to us is that there is a human being on the throne of the universe. See, that's what we forget sometimes. We rightfully think of Christ in his deity, right? We, we, we think of Christ as God, and that's right. He is God. He's God in the flesh, and we, we glory in even talking about that. I love to talk about the, the deity of Christ, the fact that God became a man, and, and we put that emphasis there, and it's a, it's a right place to emphasize, but sometimes in our emphasis of the deity of Christ, we forget the humanity of Christ. Yes, he's God, but he's God in human flesh. He's still in human flesh, And today, on the throne of the universe sits a man. See, that's the radical thing. There's a man on the throne of the universe. This is how uh, God has linked himself to humanity. He became a man, and he remains a man. He did not shed his humanity when he ascended back into heaven. No, he's a glorified man. And because he is a glorified man... That's the guarantee and the promise that we will also be glorified with him because we are connected to him in as much as the body is incomplete without the head and the head is incomplete without the body. We are one with him. So Paul, as he's praying that we might know the exceeding greatness of his power that he worked in Christ, I think he's also you know, asking that, that we would understand these things in a greater way. 
to know that just as Christ is exalted far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, that that is our destiny. That we, his body, the church, will rule and reign with him in that eternal kingdom. That's where things are headed. And practically, what does that do? Well, it gives me a ton of hope, doesn't it? If I really get a hold of it, it it fills my heart with joyful amazement. And also, practically, it causes me to want to not get ensnared in the things of this passing world and to give myself as much as possible to the Lord and to his kingdom, the kingdom that we now belong to, the kingdom that will one day manifest itself thoroughly and completely before all eyes. It's this very thing that the author of Hebrews was speaking about when he wrote these words in the second chapter. Verses six through nine, listen, quoting from the eighth Psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, of course, David wrote this originally, but the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, he's quoting it. And of course, David is right. You know, Lord, what is man? When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, Lord, what is man? Man, man seems in some ways so insignificant, right? That's, that's what the author is getting at. Man seems in some ways so insignificant, but in actuality, man is far from insignificant for the very reasons that I just gave because God became a man. But he goes on and he says, you put all things under his feet. And then he says, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So everything has been put under man. That's what the author is saying, going back to the psalm. But we don't see that, right? We, we see that uh, man is, is still subject to other forces and other powers and things that are beyond our ability to conquer sin, death, those kinds of things. So he's put all things under him, but we don't yet see that But what do we see? Here's what he says. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was made for a brief time lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So you see, this is what the author is saying. And it... it, Uh, lines up with what Paul is talking about here. God has the most amazing future in store for man. You know, I I think of people today who are uh, like the atheists, for example. You know, most atheists are um, also humanist. And what I mean by that is that they refuse to believe in God or put hope in God. Their hope is entirely in man. 
They believe in the power of man. They believe that man can someday uh, create a perfect world, a utopia. And I, I think, you know, it's so tragic because the atheistic humanists will never bring about the world they envision because it's an impossibility. Not only will they not bring about the world they envision, they will miss out on the world they wish would be because they won't submit themselves to the one who will bring about the kingdom. Jesus is going to bring about the kingdom. We do not yet see everything brought into harmony. We do not yet see man in his glorified state ruling over things as God intended. We don't see that yet, but we have the guarantee that it's going to come because we see Jesus. Jesus is the forerunner, if you will. Jesus is the, the, the Bible refers to Jesus as the first fruits, meaning that he is the first of many others to come meaning also that he is the guarantee of the full harvest. So you see, when we see Jesus, who was temporarily made lower than the angels uh, for the suffering of death, but now crowned with glory and honor, the point the author is making is this is where man is headed. And the eighth Psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him and You've, you've given him dominion over this. That will be fulfilled in the future, but Jesus is the guarantee to us that it will indeed come to pass. And so since that is our future, since that is our destiny, and this is what Paul's getting at in, in his prayer, Lord, open the eyes of their heart. Lord, give them spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, when we get a hold of this stuff, when this becomes a reality to me, then everything else is secondary. Nothing matters really apart from the glory of Christ. And we live for him and for his glory, knowing that we are his body, he is the head, and one day we will be where he presently is because he's there as our representative, seated far above all the principalities and powers. And what is true of him now will be true of us later, but it also uh, impacts us today because that same victory that he displayed in rising from the dead over sin, death, and Satan is the victory that God gives to us through our faith in him today. So sin has no victory over you today. Death has no victory over you today. Satan has no victory over you today. That's the truth. Now, if in practice, sin is having a victory over you, it's not because it has a right to, it's simply because you're allowing it to do something that it has no right to do. Don't allow that any longer. Come into harmony with the head. When you're in sin, you're like a, a body that's, that's being cut off from the, the source and you reconnect with that source through repentance, and then the body comes back into harmony with the head, and everything then functions the way God wants it to. And when you have a healthy body, it's a good thing, right? 
When you're healthy spiritually, it's a good thing for you and it's a good thing for everyone around us. This is who we really are. And so let's lay hold of it and live accordingly. Lord, we pray that these truths would sink down in our hearts, that our minds would be illuminated. Lord, the reality of your victory over sin and death and Satan would become a full reality for us as well. Lord, it's a truth. Help us to appropriate it. Help us to apply it. Help us to live according to it, we pray.